Before we get started, a message from our friends at Keeley Companies. At Keeley Companies, they do things a bit differently. They proudly call themselves Keelians. They pride themselves on swag that will knock your socks off. They have a dedicated vice president of learning and education. They have their own philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. They empower every Keelian to speak up if they feel unsafe. They have the most competitive wellness challenges around. They are committed to being better leaders of diversity and inclusion. They aren't afraid to dream big. And in the words of my friend, Rusty Keeley, they're just getting started. Check out more information on them by going to KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I want to introduce our guest today by reading a review written by Amy O'Leary Geraci five years ago. Amy O'Leary Geraci is my sister. You've heard me talk about her on the podcast. And right now you're going to hear me read a review that she wrote about a book called Rare Bird. She gave it five stars. The date was January 13, 2015. And here's what Amy wrote. This book should be mandatory required reading for everyone. I could not put this book down, explanation point. It's the true story of a mother whose 12-year-old son dies in an accident after school while playing with his sister and some friends. The author, who by the way will be our guest shortly, the author walks us through her grieving process in a very real, a very candid way. It's a raw, powerful, and incredibly moving story. And it's so much more than a depressing, sad book. It not only prepares you for hard times in your life, but also offers advice on how to help others who are grieving and going through hard times themselves. This is a must read. Those words are five and a half years old and as relevant and as timely today in the midst of COVID-19 and all the changes taking place socially as they were when Amy wrote them five and a half years ago. And my friends who are tuning in right now, I have the honor of introducing you to my friend, the author of that book, Anna Wiston Donaldson. Anna, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. Anna, you wrote Rare Bird, but it's not the only thing that you've done in your life. Tell us a little bit else of what you've done professionally to make sure that the, uh, the listeners have a full scope of what you're working on today. Sure. Well, what I've done since Rare Bird came out um, has been a lot of speaking. And um, my most recent project is a children's book, which kind of encapsulated everything that I wish I'd had to offer for my 10 year old daughter um, after her brother died. And so this is a, a children's book I wrote called A Hug From Heaven. And it is a grief book for anyone. I say that because sometimes grownups love children's books too. But it's for anyone who has had a loved one die. And the book is from the point of view of the person who died speaking directly to the one who feels left behind. 
you mentioned uh, frequently adults like to read children's books. I believe, and I could be way wrong on this, that the majority of readers of children's books and the in, in majority of those who enjoy listening to those books are actually adults. I think we get a lot of value from those. And I'm looking forward as we, you and I progress through our conversation talking more about your work into it. I wanted to though begin not with your published works, but with yeah. your past. And I'm not talking about just a couple of years ago or back in 2011 when your life profoundly changed. I'm gonna take this thing back four and a half decades or so growing up in a hundred year old farmhouse. Yeah. Why don't we talk a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. Um, my upbringing was you know, a suburban childhood in the 70s. So very carefree. Although I must admit, I'm one of those people that is never completely carefree. Yeah because I was that girl who was always sort of looking to see what other people had and making sure I had my share. I call that youngest child syndrome. Nice. Um, but just a really wonderful childhood. I lived across the street from my elementary school, down the street from the pool, just as you would imagine the 70s, um, and grew up never having moved. And I felt a little bit special because I did grow up in that big, old, drafty farmhouse surrounded by 1962, 63 um, tract houses. So um, I got to tell you, I still live in that town. I don't still live in that house, but I still live in that town. And I think some of that is because it's just a connection to my childhood. Yeah. And when I was 18, my life really profoundly changed because I was home for the summer for my first year at college. And uh, my mom, who was the heart of that old farmhouse, whether it was the, you know, putting the wallpaper on the wall or just corralling lots of kids and pets and yelling because the bikes were everywhere. Um, she was the heart of that home. And when I was home for college, my freshman year, my mom died of a brain hemorrhage right in front of me. So that was a real shift and really my being thrust into adulthood. You write about that and, and have spoken beautifully about it and, and agonizingly about that loss in your life. How did losing your mom at such a young age with her right in front of you when it happened change you? Well, it's interesting because I don't really think that anyone who knew me would have said that I changed. Um, and perhaps that's because I'm a plodder, like I plod along. Yeah. And um, I just kept going and my siblings kept going as did my father. And I think we didn't really have any dialogue about grief back then. I didn't know anybody uh, who had a dead mom. And so I just went right back to school and sorority and jobs and all of that. And I didn't really know what to do with that grief. It was pre-internet, so I couldn't write about it, right. which was an outlet for me later. And so I think that, um, I think I just kept moving forward, but I don't know that any of us uh, processed it at all or had any words for our grief. We actually didn't even talk about my mom much mm. anymore, which was very strange because I do feel like she was the heart of our home, but it was as if we tried to talk, it was almost too vulnerable. Um, and as if somehow that we felt like that would just make us crack. What do you wish those who are grieving that right now, because I, I can mm -hmm. think right now of several of our listeners who have yeah. recently lost a parent, yeah. uh, a young parent, what do you think might help them better endure this impossibly difficult season? What, what are some things that you weren't doing as an 18 year old that maybe we should be considering to do? Well, you know, I hate to put pressure um, 
on someone's grief. And so I don't think there are any shoulds. I think sometimes when someone very close to you dies, you get a lot of people saying, well, you should go into therapy right now and you should do this grief group or you should read this book. I write books about grief, but I don't inflict it on anybody. Right. I feel like there are many ways that we are just trying to get through and survive. I will say things that generally I think help are being around people who are willing to acknowledge what you're going through. Now, we can't physically be around people that much right now. Um, but, but I mean, if there are people in your life who are willing to acknowledge uh, the loss, the death, the pain, then that buoys you up. And I, help that, I think that helps equip you to, to move forward. Mm. You know, someone who's willing to say your mom's name or to share her recipe with you, or give you a picture that you know, you've never seen before and pass that along to you. People around you form community and it can take different you know, shapes and everything, but when you have community around you willing to acknowledge your loss, then that helps strengthen you. And so that would be my wish for people. I will say that sometimes it can be disappointing because people don't come around us like we think they will. And so sometimes it comes from, you know, inside us, we have to sort of know if we have to look elsewhere. Well, you are going to find community eventually one-to-one with a fellow named Tim. Talk about what it was you saw in Tim, what you fell in love with. Yeah. So my husband, Tim, and I met when we were 21. And so I always tell him he's lucky because I had gone from my big college experience and my sorority and tons of friends to a very small program with maybe 10 other people in my graduate program. So I feel like he met me at the right time because I was looking uh, for some social life and uh, he didn't have a lot of competition. Let me tell you, there weren't a lot of guys in my English master's program. (laughs) Now, Tim, however, is not an English guy, he's a scientist. So we're a real example of opposites attracting. Um, you know, sometimes I act like he's just like, uh, like a robot or something because he's totally one part of the brain and I'm the other part of the brain. He's more introverted, you're more extroverted as well. Yes. One of my understandings of a difference. Yes, although I must tell you, and that's something interesting for those who are feeling completely turned upside down by grief, if there's anyone listening here, I will, in that situation, I will say that after my son died, I did become much more introverted. And after my son died, my husband, and we've been together 20 years, so I thought I really knew him. He completely became more extroverted and had much more social needs than before. So that was very interesting for us to flip-flop. You wrote, I think somewhere in your book, or I've heard you say a couple of times, this idea that Tim had a pretty good upbringing, pretty good life. You said the hardest thing that he went through was when he found out about Santa. Yes. Yes. So for him to go from really not experiencing any major hardship at all to at age 41, just being slammed with what most people consider the greatest loss, um, the loss of a child, it was just really... um, it was just, it was just really a lot for Tim. Yeah. Well, it's impossible to imagine for any of us. And so let, let's talk about that child. You, you have two children early in your life. The first one yeah. is a little baby boy named Jack. Talk about precious Jack. Yes. So Jack was my ticket out of teaching because I was a high school English teacher and I worked so hard and I loved it, but I just felt completely overwhelmed by it. 
Um, and so when I had the opportunity, when Jack was born on a Thursday to go have Jack and not go back to teaching, uh, he was my, he was my ticket. And we were very, very tight, uh, from day one. He was just, um, very intense and very sweet and boys just really love their moms, you know? <laughs> and so we just got a huge kick out of each other and made each other laugh. Jack um, was followed two years later by his little sister, Margaret, and she was uh, the spunky, spunky little sister who went along with his imagined worlds and everything that he kind of dragged her into. What were they like as a, as a duo? Well, you know, they were both very small for their age. And um, sometimes people asked if they were twins, which really, you know, embarrassed Jack because Margaret was two years younger. But they were very, very tight and uh, very complimentary to each other because, um, I don't know, it's my goal as a mom. How can I help these kids be really close? And they were so close, you know, with their own, you know, inside um, relationship and jokes and stories. And then I thought later, once Jack died, I was like, was that a mistake? Yeah. You know, for them to be so intensely close, so much so that it was notable to people that they were close. There wasn't this rivalry at all. Um, but, you know, I don't regret that, that closeness that they had at all, even though they were together all the time, even almost to the moment of, of, of Jack's death. For you as a mom, as a lady, as a leader, and then guiding them forward, faith was really important. Uh, tell me why, before the storm, uh, before the profound loss, that you, you leaned into your faith as strongly as you did? I think in one way, it was a way of being connected with my mom because my mom was a woman of faith. Uh, she was also just like a really generous, fun um, woman. And I just felt like faith was just a big, a big part of her personality. And I just wanted to emulate her. And so she had given me that background. I wanted to give my kids that background. And so our lives really did revolve around, um, you know, our community, but, but a lot of that was around our church. And um, I even worked at the church when, when my kids were little. So at the time of Jack's accident, I was actually working as the manager of our church bookstore. So we were fully immersed in, in our faith and in our church community. Your, your little ones are going to go off to summer camp, church, Bible camp. Yeah. And one of the most moving things as I read through your work is a, a, a writing that your little girl, Margaret, did that summer, the summer before the loss of her mm -hmm. brother. And I'm just going to quote this verbatim so I get it right. I can't quote scripture word for word without getting a few of the words wrong. So let's make I'm sure. I'm just glad you're not asking me to do this right no, now. I, I'm not going to put you on the spot. <laughs> I may put you on the spot later on. So grab a, a, grab a copy of that book. Keep it close. But this is from Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. It was written by a little fourth grader. And it's going to be wildly predictive of the life that she's about to live. So here, here is the words written by Margaret in cursive from Isaiah. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. It's an odd thing for a little fourth grader to write down in her own hands. When you read it before the, uh, before the loss of Jack, what, what stirred within you? You know, you're reading this little girl's handwriting. What, what did you think? Right. It, it was so interesting for her to have come back from summer camp 
and she had prayed to God, God, will you show me a life verse, a verse to live by? And her brother years ago had said his life verse was, for nothing is impossible with God. And, you know, maybe he picked it because it was short. Maybe he picked it because, you know, he had struggles with things, but that was his. So she prayed that God would show her a verse. And this is the verse, the, the, the citation that came to her. So she looked it up in her Bible and it was really there. And this is what it was. So she wrote it down. And I thought that was super cool. And I thought, you know, I'm glad it's not about something super weird. But then when I read what it was about, that it was encouraging her that even with these hard, if, if hard times came in life, that she'd be okay. That was wonderful. But you know what she said to me? She said, mom, I like this verse, but it worries me because maybe it means something bad is going to happen to me. Mm. And then within a couple weeks is when Jack's accident happened. And it wasn't just any accident. It was a water accident. And Margaret was nearby and did survive. And the water did not sweep over her. So it just seemed very, um, wow, just prescient, profound. I can't explain, you know, I can't explain it. Let's talk about that September day, 2011. I think there's a knock on your door. The doorbell rings, your kids are home, and now there's kids at the front door. Yeah. And then I'll let you take it from there. Sure. It was just, I mean, it was such a wonderful day until it wasn't. It was one of those days you might remember even if something terrible hadn't happened hmm. because it was a very warm, balmy, early September day the second day of my kids going back to school, the first day for their neighborhood friends who were at a different school. And it just felt very celebratory. However, there was a soaking rain, making things almost steamy out. And um, we had had a couple weeks before, we'd had a hurricane come to our area, yet it hadn't amounted to anything. And it was kind of like a little bit of a joke. What we didn't realize was that day, this soaking rain, was a tropical storm and it was coming down on top of our land that already had been affected by this hurricane. So there was just water, water, water with nowhere for it to go. So I had a full day at work. The kids had a day at school. Their dad, who normally would be home at five o'clock, it was like he was getting back to business. We were getting back on school schedule. So he, instead of being home, was still at work. And, uh, my kids had finished their homework. The electricity had gone out in the house, which happens all the time in our town. And it was always kind of fun. And so when the other kids got off their bus, they got soaked in the rain. Uh, there was another mom outside with one of those um, pop-up tents and she was serving kids cupcakes outside. Water was rushing down the street into the gutters. It just had a very, celebratory feel to it. So the, so three kids knocked on our kitchen door and invited Jack and Margaret to go out and play with them in the rain. And I was, I said, sure. Yeah, of course. And I had such good memories of playing in the rain as a kid. And I was so glad my mom always said, sure. <laughs> so I sent them out. And um, the last view I had was these five happy kids walking down our long driveway to the cul-de-sac below. 
and I saw Jack who was 12 with his arms raised the sky and he was just doing a full turn laughing and smiling. So after that, I could see them down on the cul-de-sac running in and out of my view through our kitchen window. And um, I just relaxed. I read a magazine, yeah. put on my comfy clothes and my flip flops. And um, a little bit later, I heard thunder. So I decided to go get the kids. And um, I hopped in my car, which is kind of silly because they were in the cul-de-sac, but I didn't want to get wet. I wasn't going to get wet. So I hopped in the car and drove down to the cul-de-sac. And about two houses away, I saw Margaret walking towards me, soaking her little, you know, wet Snoopy t-shirt. And um, I said, where's Jack? Because they were always together. And she said, he's in so-and-so's backyard. And that did not trigger anything in me uh, because I'd actually never been in so-and-so's backyard before. So she hopped in the car and I got out to get wet and go around to the back of this house and, and bring Jack home. And um, the mom who lived in that house, who had just moved in, leaned out the back window at, because she saw me and all the windows were open. She said, oh, he's not down there with them. And I said, no, Margaret says he is. And I just kept walking. And when I got down to the slope in her backyard, I will tell you there was a creek back there. And of course I knew there was a creek in my neighborhood. This is where we would go down and turn over rocks and look at tadpoles, not in that backyard, but other places in the neighborhood. But my, in my mind, that creek was this yeah. almost completely empty, dry creek bed. But that's not what I saw that day. What I saw that day was a raging, raging creek. Um, it was terrifying to look at. So I got down there and she was right. There were only two little boys standing there and Jack was not one of them. So less than a minute had transpired between Margaret telling me this and me getting down there, but there was no Jack. And I asked the boys, I said, where's Jack? And they said, in the river, in the river. Because to them, it looked like a river too at that point. And so that's when I knew we were in serious trouble. And in my heart, um, even though my brain wasn't processing in my heart, I think I knew at that moment that he was dead. Even though he might not have been dead yet, I just had this. And what happened after that was running and looking and, and trying to find him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I, as you know, I was burned as a little boy. And when I tell the story, I think it's emotional. I think it's a, it's a, a terrifically sad and yet wildly beautiful and triumphant story. When I hear my mother tell the story, though, I'm a total train wreck because when I hear it from her perspective oh. and how her heart sank and how she was so beat down and how she was so concerned, it's a level of love that you don't even have for your own life. Like you, right. you love your children so much more. You would mm -hmm. certainly jump in the river if it would mean that you would bring Jack back. My mother would yes. certainly jump in the fire if it had provided her son, John, the opportunity of not being burned. And so when I hear you telling this story, I'm thinking about my own mom and any single mom, dad, aunt, uncle, whoever loved anything more than themselves. Yeah. So you and I are looking in this raging river. There's two little boys looking up at you and there's no little Jack nearby. What do you yeah. do next? So I uh, start to run along the... Um, 
the bank of the creek and I'm getting snagged by briars and um, there's a lot of other little kids still out playing in the neighborhood. My best friend's across the street sitting in her open garage in a camp chair. No one knows that things have just completely changed. So I have a knowing in my heart at that moment where Jack is. And my knowing is, is that he is outside the neighborhood um, in basically a drainage ditch that goes under the road. And so I run back up and I remember thinking, getting mad at myself because I was out of shape. Why don't you exercise, Anna? Why aren't, you know, why, why can't you even do this right? Uh, because I felt my, my drive flagging. What kind of mom am I, you know? Yeah. So I run up the hill and I see little children and I yell for them to pray. And I hop in the car and I drive with Margaret in the car outside of the neighborhood trying to get to this drainage ditch. And she's upset. And I'm almost there, but traffic is completely stopped because our road, the road in our community is flooding over that drainage ditch and cars that are trying to get home from work can't get home from work. So I can't get there. And I think in my heart, I'm thinking, of course you can get there. Stop the car. Run down there. It's not that far. It wasn't that far. I could see where I was trying to go. But then the knowing inside me said, help the one you're with. And that was Margaret. And I turned around. And I came back to the neighborhood. And I told her everything was going to be okay. But my voice wasn't saying everything. was. It was saying it, but my tone was clear that I, I didn't believe it. And we called 911 and came home and did what they told us to do as they went to look for Jack. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they did find him several hours later, and that is where his body was. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you call Tim? I had to call him, and I had to say, what happened? And, and, and he was on his way home. He was stuck in that traffic. And the fire department was stuck in that traffic. Everyone was stuck. And um, he came home and he just looked so shocked. And he didn't know what to do. And he looked to me for, for my guidance because I'm the more um, decisive one. And he said, should I go down there? You think your parental instincts are gonna get you to the drainage ditch. But, but then, but I came home. You think it would have gotten him to run down there, but our world was so confused right then. It was so off of our radar of how life could be. He said, should I go down there? And I had to say, yes, you need to go down there. So he did. And I was told to stay in the house. And so I did. Yeah. How did you find out that your son was no longer alive, but uh, had, the, the water had claimed his life. Yeah. So as I said, I had this knowing right away, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have hope. I, I hoped that that knowing was wrong. So I just had people in my kitchen waiting with me as a fireman was outside of our kitchen. And um, I didn't know then, but, but that person had been told to, to, 
to stay there and observe in case I did something to harm myself while I was waiting. But I wasn't harming myself. I was cutting cheese up and crackers for, for, for my friends who were waiting with me. And I, we were making small talk and we were just waiting because even though I had this knowing that, that Jack was not going to come back, I also wanted to prolong yeah. that time before anyone could tell me. So during that time, you know, we made phone calls and we waited and um, it grew dark outside because before it had been light outside. And finally, um, some police officers came and told us that they had found him, but that he was not alive. And then we needed to go, we, we, we went a little bit later and told Margaret, I told her. Mm -hmm. Talk about, you know, I'll get emotional asking the question because it's just yeah. real and sad and unfortunate yeah. and utterly tragic that this little 10-year-old who moments earlier, moments, right? A couple hours, it's just a blink of an eye, was playing hand in hand with her little brother. And then she leaves yeah. the bed. She goes up because it's starting to rain again. Thunder is yeah. rolling. Mm -hmm. And two hours later, her mom and dad are kneeling in front of her, sharing the worst news imaginable. Yeah. You know, you're talking about a mother's love, a parent's love. And um, I got to tell you, like, my heart was hurting so badly for Jack. And my mother's grief was so strong for me. But she was really my concern right then. Because um, I didn't want her to have to go through that kind of pain. And um, I would have done anything to spare her from that pain. But I couldn't. I just had to honestly tell her. I said, Jack died. And we're going to be okay. And you're going to be safe. Yeah. I didn't know enough about grief and trauma at the time. Um, I've learned so much since then. You know how we become these uh, experts, even though we don't want to be? Absolutely. Um, and so I know now that it would have been really healthy to have her have to talk about and talk about and talk about what happened. But I didn't know that at the time. So at the time we just surrounded her with love and safety and security. Um, but I don't know if we really gave her avenues to process because her life, you know, in many ways, you know, her brother died, but then, you know, her parents were thrust into this abject grief. And so that's another loss for her. There's a lot. There's so much, Anna. And, and as my sister said, yes, it's a story of grief, but it's also a story of joy. And, and so I'd like for you to share a, a glimmer, an ounce of joy that you experienced, even in the midst of this profound storm that you as a family were dealing with. Sure. And I'm so glad that your sister um, mentioned that in that, that kind review, because I don't want people to be afraid of my story, you know? I don't want them to be afraid to, 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 to get close to it because it brings up the, you know, their deepest fears. It's, it's a sad book in parts, but I, I didn't want it to be a sad book because it's also just real life and life is full of, and, you know, sadness and joy. And we did have joy in the midst of all of this. And I've got to tell you, you know, of course we had anger. Of course we had just the, so much pain, but even early on, we were able to recognize how 
honored we felt to be able to have Jack as part of our family. And um, the, the amazing thing about grief is as it morphs and as it changes, that gratitude piece got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the grief has softened and softened and softened over time. But even earlier on, we were able to laugh because Jack brought so much humor into our household, you know? Um, oh my gosh, this just reminded me, and I, I don't, I think I put this in the book, but as I said, I haven't read the book in a while. But, you know, we were going to a, um, oh my gosh, we were going to a soccer tournament just, you know, days after this. And that felt really weird. You know, you have an empty seat in your car. It was just so strange, but, but we were driving there and really those soccer games kept us going for a while because we had nothing else on our calendar. Um, but Tim was driving and I guess he did like a real dumb driving move, like almost swerving us into another lane and little Margaret in the back seat said, we're coming Jack. <laughs> and I was like, we all laughed. And I'm like, there's still laughter in the midst of this because our family is hurting and in many ways broken, but we're still, you know, we're still that family. Yeah. And I think the loss that you've experienced is one that very few of us will ever have to weather, but I think we will see it and witness it and be a part of it in our community. Oh yeah. Right. So it's, it, it may not be ours to shoulder, but it will be around us. Yeah. So as we recognize our role in that community. What, what did some of your neighbors, people you went to church with, strangers, whoever it may have been, what did they do for you in a way that was really healthy and supportive and beautiful looking back on it? Oh my goodness. Um, there was so much, and I've got to tell you, I learned so much from what people did for us. It wasn't like, cause I had never been like, I don't think this super supportive person in my community. I think, um, I, I just learned so much. And I think the first thing, the most important thing that we got was acknowledgement there was never a time that we felt like anyone was trying to make Jack's death, you know, less important or smaller. Right. And I say that because I think a lot of grievers um, don't get acknowledgement. It could be because of the way that their um, loved one died. Perhaps, um, you know, perhaps it was a death by suicide or a death by overdose or um, a, a death when someone was quite elderly. And so people don't think it's going to have these impacts or somehow the, the grief should be mitigated because of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. But I think acknowledgement is so key because when we acknowledge that someone else is in pain and they're grieving, they feel seen. And you know what? If you feel seen, you don't spend all of your precious energy trying to prove yeah. how hard things are. You could use that energy towards healing or parenting the child that is still there or just, just so many other things. But I think acknowledgement is the key and we got acknowledgement and I'm so grateful for that. It was huge. Just so many families need acknowledgement, but don't get it. Correct. And I think that was so key to my healing. I can't not, I mean, I just can't express it enough. And you also mentioned that many of those friends who were closest to you weren't the ones at your doorstep. And many of those that you knew, in some regards, the least, were the yes. ones that showed some enduring love yes. over the course of the, over your healing. Yes. So, you know, every grieving family is going to have different examples of neat things that people do. In our case, uh, people that we didn't even know that well started this thing in our small town 
where people put these beautiful royal blue ribbons on mailboxes all over town, on trees, on fence posts, so that when we would drive by, it was like a hug. Okay, we see you. Jack matters. That's all, you just wanna know that your person matters. Yes. So that was amazing. And it's funny because those weren't our closest friends that started doing that. Jack's favorite color wasn't blue. I don't know where the blue came from, right? But it was, it turned out to be awesome. Mm. And, you know, there's the regular things that people do, which is food and, um, you know, invitations to do things. And there's so many things. And some things are going to be a hit and some things are going to be a miss. But the key is if you feel that, um, you know, if you feel moved inside, whether you're going to call that the Holy Spirit or your intuition, you know, to reach out to someone who's hurting, to send them a book, to send them a card. I mean, it's not hard to send a card. Then I say, please just pay attention to that. Even if your thing isn't the thing that brings them the most comfort. And don't make the excuse that you're not that close to these people. Because as you said, John, some of the people that I thought were really going to be there for us, whether it was because they were grieving or they were scared because child death is scary. I don't know, but some people pulled away. And then other people who are now our closest friends right. stepped into it and stepped into it with us. That's well, beautiful. It is beautiful. And you, you're using the words us, 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 the, the entire yeah. family. And one thing we all know, I'll, be, I'll state the obvious, Captain Obvious is about to step into the podcast. Marriage is hard. Okay, people, oh, marriage yeah. is really tricky. Intimate yeah. relationships are always hard. Doing life with people is not easy. That's under the best of circumstances. You're about to go through the worst of circumstances. Yeah. You, you write about that in detail, both the beautiful and the challenging aspects of recovering and moving forward and healing together with Tim. There's a section, though, and I asked you before we hit record, I said, you know, and is there any way you might even be open to reading a portion of your book, of, of your life with our audience? And so I'll ask you again now that everybody else is tuning in, is there a willingness you may have to read a portion of your time, of your experience with Tim, uh, with our audience. Sure. And I will say that, you know, it is a misconception when people say that, you know, child loss is, is going to greatly increase your chances of divorce. Um, some studies say that's true. Some studies say it's not, but it's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, an edict. It doesn't have to be a prescription. But grief is hard, like you're saying. And it's hard on every member of the family. And it's going to tax those relationships because you're all grieving differently. I will say that because I already had experienced deep grief when my mom died, I already knew right here that Tim and I were going to grieve differently. Because I'd seen it with my brother, with my sister, with my dad, and with me. So I already knew that. And I think that that really gave me an extra measure of grace towards Tim's and my differences. And also, I've known for 25 years that we can't even fold a flat sheet together. <laughs> Not even a fitted sheet. We can't even fold a flat yeah. sheet. That's, that's above my pay grade. Right? So, so I was, it was not a surprise to me when we were grieving differently. We just had to figure it out. But yeah, the excerpt you asked me to read, oh my goodness, I had to get my reading glasses on. But it's really short, so I'm very happy to read it. Margaret is at a sleepover. It's been almost two months since the accident. We have a small window when there will be two people, not three, in the bed. I know what's coming. We move around the house, 
satellites orbiting the same planet, but not coming close to one another. Tim works in the office upstairs, occasionally coming down to the kitchen where I sit, trying to stimulate my fractured brain with a crossword puzzle. I walk to the washing machine to switch a load and can hear he is now somewhere else in the house. If we wait too long, it will get late. I'll get tired and say no. If I make myself too accessible, it might look as if I'm initiating, which I am not. I try to stay under the radar, yet semi-accessible, because we're going to have to face this at some point, and maybe that means tonight. We cross paths in the family room where I am about to turn on the TV. Do you want to fool around, he says, with a look neither hopeful nor horny. He looks sad. Okay, I say, putting down the remote and slowly heading upstairs. My voice is neutral. I'm glad he's asked because although in the immediate aftermath of the accident, the idea of sex was unthinkable, I know it's something we should consider now. We sit upright on the bed, our shoes hanging off the edge, more like acquaintances on a train than spouses. Do you think I'm a jerk for wanting to have sex, he asks. No, and I mean it. Why wouldn't he want to do something that can make him feel better and take his mind off reality for a little while? In general, my willingness to have sex is not guaranteed even in the most positive of circumstances. A messy house, stress about the kids, or a long to-do list can throw me off kilter and derail the whole thing before Tim even knows he's in trouble. He has learned that even if things look favorable, there's no guarantee we'll get to the finish line. And now with a complication of grief, his proposition is especially risky. Sex brought us our children and will always be linked with them. He continues in his formal way. It's just that you don't really want to on a normal day. So I can't imagine you want to do it now. I nod, he gets it. I wish I had been a more fun, spontaneous wife when things had been easier but I thought life had been difficult then. I remember reading that sex can be one of the greatest comforts to a man. So I say, yes, we make it through and it is good. I'm proud of us, but I wonder how long it will be before we can do it without both of us crying. Anna, when I read that years ago, having no idea the kind of grief that you were dealing with at that time, I also wondered what it takes to have the kind of courage and intimacy and, and vulnerability to share that with strangers. You shared it with a guy in St. Louis, Missouri that would probably never meet you. And you shared it with hundreds of thousands of others. So the question is really less around the grief and the mm -hmm. than the willingness and the avail availability that you've shown to open up your life and your experiences with those around you. Talk, just talk about that. What, 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 <laughs> What frees you to be so real with people that you may never mm -hmm. meet out of eternity? Yeah. Well, you know, before Jack died, I was already blogging. I was one of the early mommy bloggers and I was writing about the ins and outs of our lives on the internet. And the good news is, is that Tim, although back then I called him Tom on my blog to protect his identity, uh, right? Tim, Tom, <laughs> he, he was, okay with that. He liked me having that outlet because it meant, even if it meant I was talking to thousands of strangers on the internet, 
if it mean he didn't necessarily have to have the conversation, he, enjoyed, he liked that. So that was already in place and I was used to sharing. And um, once Jack died, the story ran through our online community and they showed up to my blog every day to see if I was okay. And then I showed up every day to my blog to start writing about real grief in real time. And it was my way of showing up for them and vice versa. And in many ways that saved me. So it was vulnerable, but it was also very healing. And I'm glad I had that outlet because I don't think that everyone has an outlet like that to share the, um, the messiness of grief. And I was already used to sharing the messiness of, of parenting and of marriage and just, you know, life. But this took that to a different level because I think it, it sort of pulled back the curtain for a lot of people. So you've, you've been blogging for a while. Eventually those blog posts plus your own uh, mm-hmm. color around it becomes the book Rare Bird. Yeah. It gets published. It touches lives all around the country, all around the world. You're at a book signing. And for those of us who've been in book signings, you're only focused on the one in front of you. You can only be with yeah. one person at a time. And then eventually that person leaves and the next person's in front of you and it's a woman. She's shaking and your guttural reaction is, I bet she's lost a child. She's just way too emotional. I bet she's lost a child. Would you share why she was shaking, why she was so emotional standing in front of you that day? Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because sometimes I need to be reminded of these neat stories in my own life. Because in the day-to-day, sometimes I forget about the miracles and how faithful God is and how we're, we're all connected. So thank you for bringing that up. Um. This is not in the book because this happened at a book signing after the book was already out in the world. And I had already been really spending time with other bereaved parents to try to sort of be there for them. And so I figured you're right that this young woman had had a child die. But what she told me blew me away. She hadn't even been following my story. She had not read the book but she had seen a flyer for this book signing at her university where she was becoming a creative writer. And she said, I recognize your name and I recognize the story because I was one of the paramedics on scene that night by the Creek. And I've got to tell you, even though I didn't have a lot of rumination about those final moments for Jack, because I knew that wasn't super healthy for me. And somehow I was freed from that. I had thought about this whole concept of, but he did die alone. My understanding of that has really changed a lot since then, because I don't feel like anyone truly dies alone. I think that's important to remember in this time, because I'm hearing a lot of very, very hard, sad stories about people whose loved ones are dying in in COVID wards. And it is breaking their hearts that their loved ones are dying alone. My understanding is, however, that we do not die alone in that we are instantly transported to a place so wonderful and there are loved ones there to greet us. 
So that's, that's an aside, but I think it's an important aside. Yes. But I think when this book came out, I was still having that feeling Jack died alone. It was not a spoken feeling. It was something right in here. Okay. So this woman says, I was a paramedic that night. And I just want you to know, I was there when they found Jack and I waited with Jack until they took him away. And I just want you to know that because he was not alone. I was the one with him. And then she couldn't believe the title of the book because she said, I also want you to know that in the darkness by the creek, waiting for them to take Jack away, I was overwhelmed with singing birds in the trees. She said, I'll never forget it. So that's an amazing example of a miracle, but if someone taking the time to go way outside her comfort zone to give me that gift, she didn't have to come and do that, but she did. Well, I want to thank you for giving us that gift of sharing that remarkable story. And you said several times during that story, we do not die alone. We do not die alone. We also do not live alone, thankfully. And yeah. yeah. You are in your mid forties. Uh, Mother Nature has made it seemingly impossible for you to have any more children. So you've, you've had your two beautiful children. You're still mm -hmm. raising your little Margaret. And then your life changes again. I want to remind individuals <laughs> of, of Jack's Bible verse before you share this Bible <laughs> before we pivot into the Live Inspired 7. But it comes from Luke. I wrote this down because I have to remember yeah. it word for word. Luke 1, 37, it's his favorite Bible verse. It says this, nothing is impossible with God. And so with that, Anna... Uh, nothing is impossible with God. Tell us what happens in your mid forties. Well, the interesting thing about that particular passage, which I didn't realize when Jack picked it was that that's what Mary is, is, is living when she finds out that she's pregnant. No, what? I mean, <laughs> how did this happen for nothing is impossible with God? Well, when I was 45 pushing 46, I thought I was going through menopause and it turns out I was pregnant and this was not planned. So the odds, even with really working towards this and a lot of medical intervention would have still meant that the odds of being able to be pregnant at that age and carry a baby um, and having that baby be born healthy were so, so, so slim. And I do not mean, I mean, I have a smile on my face, but I don't mean to make light of infertility. I know a lot of people probably listening have, you know, such a heart's desire to have kids. I will tell you that was not on my radar yeah. when I found out at age 45 that I was pregnant and I just had to laugh. That's more like in the Bible when uh, Sarah finds out she's having <laughs> Isaac at her advanced age and she laughs. Uh, that's about how I felt. And I just showed my little Dollar Tree pregnancy test to Tim and he laughed too. And now we are both 50 years old <laughs> and we have a little four-year-old boy named Andrew. Andrew Luke, by the way. Andrew Luke. In, the, in my family for generations, middle names are always last names. So Jack's full name was Jack Harris Donaldson. Harris is a family name, my mom's maiden name. But we decided for Andrew to give him a different na middle name, Luke, in honor of Jack's Bible verse. Mm -hmm. Nothing is impossible. 
Sarah. Nothing's impossible. That board, and you are reminding us of that in your work, yeah. in your words, and most recently in a book called A Hug from Heaven. Yeah. We've got the Live Inspired Seven Questions to wrap up with here in a moment, but before mm -hmm. we get there, just tell us a little bit more about A Hug from Heaven. Well, the first book had done so well, and I didn't know what to do next. And there were a couple offshoot ideas, but they weren't speaking to me. And so finally, it just came to me in a poem what I wanted to write next, and it was this children's book. And it really, Rare Bird deals with my confusion and my raw early grief, and that's why it's so awesome to give people an early grief, because it's so real. This book is also real. It takes the things I've learned about healthy grieving, about how love never dies, how we are still in relationship, with um, our loved ones. So it takes all of that and puts it in this children's book. And it has been really terrific because people are always reaching out to me about how, whether they're adults or whether they're kids, this speaks to them. Yeah. I debuted this at a, um, a conference for bereaved parents. And I was able to read it to them as if their children were saying it to them. And that was amazing. And then there's kids who read it as if their grandparents are reading it to them. Anyway, it's been very special. So thanks for letting me share that. It's called A Hug from Heaven. And it does also deal with those very special ways that, that God reaches out to us tenderly um, to make us feel less alone in our, in our grief. And the, the main takeaway is love never dies. You know, I, as we move into the final seven questions together, yeah. that, that's where I want to pivot. For those who feel as if the love in their life has died, that their future uh -huh. has been cut short, that the miracle that you received, that Tim received, that your family has received has never shown up in their life. Yeah. And that the best days are behind us, not in front of us. For those who really are feeling beat down right now by life and by loss, what, what encouragement might you offer them? Well, I've got to tell you, you know, you see me smiling now, but I don't want you at all to think that I didn't feel real pain and then I ran away from my pain. I actually made a concerted effort to let myself feel it and acknowledge it and live with it. And while that was happening, gratitude found its way in. And it wasn't through faking. It wasn't through just like plowing forward the way I had when my mom died, just like, okay, I just gotta be strong. Right. It wasn't, didn't come from any of those things. I just want to encourage anyone listening who feels like they don't have love and they don't have hope that real joy, real hope, not fake joy and fake hope are truly possible in any circumstance. I wouldn't have believed that necessarily at the beginning. And that's why I think it really helps to hear it from people who've been through something so hard. Mm -hmm. I think that's why your story, John, touches so many hearts. I hope that's a way that my story can be used. I also um, think there's room for trust in all of our lives. And you may not feel it now, but I have really tried to learn how to trust my story, my life story, and for the way it's unfolded. And um, some days it takes a lot more trust than others. Yes. Those early days of grief took so much trust. I actually said to God, I said, the ball's in your court. I'm going to keep trusting you, but I'm going to quit trying hard because looks where it's gotten me anyway. 
I'm going to see if you're going to show up for me. And you know what? I feel like again and again, whether it was that woman at the bookstore or um, just opportunities that have come along, Andrew, the joy of Andrew, I feel like um, my story has been trustworthy. And that if that's the case, I can trust my future too. Yeah. It's beautifully said, Anna. We have seven questions that tether all of our guests together, and we're grateful to have you as part of our community and friendship now. The first question is, we know that you are a prolific writer. I also know that you love books. What's the best book you've ever read? Ah, that's awful, because my brain feels so adult now. I'm like, I keep going to book club, and all I do is drink the wine. That's fine. Um, <laughs> None yeah, of us um, judge people for drinking a little bit of wine at book club. I think that's yeah. the majority of the reason why we gather in the first place. But in addition to the wine. Okay. One of my favorite books is A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. I like to read it about every 10 years or so. And um, it's, just, it's, it's just pretty special. There's some miracles in there too. Speaking of miracles, what's one positive characteristic, uh, one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in that 100-year-old farmhouse? Mm -hmm that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, gosh. Sometimes I feel like I'm still that little girl, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, you're going to help me reclaim my wonder, aren't you? That's the idea. I like this. I like this. I think possibility. Yeah, I think that the just being open to possibilities. Well, I think bringing a healthy baby into the world at age 46 proves that you are fairly open to possibility. <laughs> Speaking of possibility, if your house caught fire yeah. and all your children are out, Tim is out, the animals are out, everybody's out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one ah. thing. What's that one thing that you come racing back outside with? Probably nothing. Yeah. You got what you need. Yeah. Yeah. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you like to have that conversation with? One person, right? Just one. I'm going to go with my mom. Hmm. What would you say to your mom that wasn't said by the time you were 18? What, what's that one thing? Gosh, John, I wish she had known this, or I wish I had asked her that. Yeah. I'm sorry I was a pain in the butt sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I can still say that now. I can still tell her that now. Um, but wow, mom, being a wife and a mom is challenging. I would want to acknowledge her. Mm. And, and on behalf of all the wives and the moms and the those of us who have parented or fostered or loved, thank you for reminding us that it is hard and it is worthy. So oh, yeah. What is the best advice your mom, your dad, Jack, anybody else ever gave you? What's the best advice you've ever received? One thing my mom told me was don't be afraid to leave someone at the altar. Hmm. she knew I was a people pleaser and she didn't, she knew maybe I could let something go too far. And she wanted me to know that nothing is permanent. You, you know, you can make a change even if it seems like there's too much riding on it. Hmm. Yeah. That's awesome advice. I'm, I'm glad Tim was not the recipient of you living into that advice, but it is awesome. Yeah. advice. He was a little nervous. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> What would you tell your 20-year-old self? If you could whisper some sage advice into yourself at age 20, what would you say? Be more playful. Have more fun. Um, you just, you only get this one life. 
So don't take it all so seriously. Yeah, relax a little bit. I don't like it when anyone tells me to relax, but I think I can tell my younger self to relax. Yes, I've learned I should never offer that advice to my loving bride. Okay, oh, I should, or I calm keep down. Ever wants to receive, so I'm going to keep no. the rest of the story to myself. No. But I'll end with this question. Anna Winston Donaldson, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She loved and she didn't give up. Anna Winston Donaldson did indeed love. Refused to give up. Her life, her stories, her blog, her books, and her interview is living exhibit A of that truth. And I want to thank you for making time for us and for not for utilizing your grief, not only that you and your family might be able to get through it, but that the rest of us who go through losses in our lives could also imagine that someday we also might be able to be with you. I just want to thank you so much. You inspire me and this, this really felt good. Thanks. <laughs> For us too. My friends, that is Anna Whiston Donaldson. I am John O'Leary and today is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach, we're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.